0: Hello and welcome to the EdSurge on Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education and learning. I'm Betsy Corcoran, the co-founder and CEO of EdSurge. Artificial intelligence promises to have a dramatic and, yes, that word, disruptive effect on education and jobs over the next decade or so. And here's a second big trend, the role of China and Chinese companies, especially those building products or services laced with all those machine learning algorithms that we call AI. If you wanted to get a glimpse into what these twin forces mean for the world, I can think of no better expert than Dr. Kai-Fu Lee. Li. Dr. Lee has done it all. He's been an enormously influential researcher, driving forward work on AI since his days at Columbia University and Carnegie Mellon University. He also has had influential roles at Apple, Microsoft, and helped start Google China. He's also started a venture capital firm based in Beijing called Sino Ventures and written eight top-selling books in China. And yep, he's got more than 50 million followers on social media. Now his latest book, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order, is out in the U.S., and it's almost like two books in one. It tells the story of the development of AI and why we should care, and it does a remarkable job of describing what entrepreneurism in China is like, and giving us a peek into what he calls the gladiator capitalism that's giving rise to companies that have billion dollar valuations and the power to change the world. So let's take a moment to set the scene. Work on AI dates back to the 1950s. During my career as a science and tech writer, I've covered two other times when people went from being giddy with excitement about AI to being a little disappointed when it fell short. In the past, computing hardware has been slow and the available data has been patchy and algorithms couldn't deliver. But all that began to change in the mid 2000s, topped off by a new idea for how to train neural networks or collections of learning algorithms. And then two and a half years ago, there was what Dr. Lee describes as a Sputnik moment, a riveting event that captured the imagination of millions and unleashed enormous competitive research into AI. What happened? Well, a computer called AlphaGo beat a legendary Korean Go player. And... The world changed. Over the past two and a half years, billions of dollars and countless research hours have been poured into developing what's called narrow AI, specific applications of AI that can do the job better than any human or even team of humans. And all that's led Dr. Lee to write this book and make a stunning prediction that over the next 15 years, or really by the time today's three-year-old toddlers become adults, close to half of what we think of as today's jobs will be done by machines powered by artificial intelligence. I was fortunate to catch up with Dr. Lee in California on a recent Saturday morning. Here's why he believes the AI, and particularly some of the work that's being developed by Chinese companies, is fated to rock our world and how we learn. So you make a very big assertion in your book. Mm -hmm. You tell us that in 15 years, close to 40, 50% of the jobs that we know in the U.S. will be gone.
1: Well, they would be doable by AI.
0: Doable by AI. They may
1: not not be gone because of uh, regulations, labor unions, employers choosing not to displace, and other issues.
0: That's still a, a pretty big prediction. Mm-hmm. Tell us why we should have confidence in that prediction. Why, why do you really feel that that's what's going to happen?
1: Sure, um, because of AI super performance. And part of the reason I called the book AI Superpowers is that AI does have superpowers, not in terms of the science fiction robot overlords, but more in terms of uh, in a single task with a huge amount of training data, AI is beating human by unbelievable um, proportions. For example, we have an investment in a loan application using AI. It makes loans to people and, and to random people who request $200, $500, and it's sent to them instantly over the phone. You would think such an app would have a default rate of 70 or 80%, but it has a default rate of 3% because it's able to uh, really use all the data about the user to make a very, very um, uh, safe decision when the loan is given. We have an uh, another app that's uh, for face recognition. It could recognize people with amazing accuracy from a database of three million faces. So no human can possibly know that many faces. So people are used to seeing, you know, um, AI beating people at a game of Go, AI beating people in speech recognition, AI beating people in image recognition, but here we're talking about absolutely superhuman tasks. So with capabilities like that, where, why would there ever be another loan officer? Why would there ever be another uh, policeman whose job is to recognize faces? Now, wow. there are other things policemen could do, but part of the task is gone, and so is part of the workforce.
0: So let's talk about education. Um, it raises a full collection of questions. Yeah. First, um, how do we start to educate uh, our students, whether they're in the US or China for this new world? Yeah. So let's start with what if you could wave a magic wand, what would be the ideal classroom for maybe say for start with young students? Yeah. What, kind of, yeah. what kind of education should they have?
1: If I could wave a magic wand, I'd make everything go away and start from scratch. Everything. Everything, but I can't. So, so that's just a uh, a dream. Everything has to fit within the current expectations and environment. If you think about how everything has progressed, the way um, office an office, what an office used to look like, and what it looks like now with computers and phones and, uh, and, and all everything done electronically versus uh, 100 years ago when it was all paper, desk work, and so on. And if you think about uh, almost any profession, it's been completely uh, transformed by technology over the last 100 years. But if you look at a picture in the classroom today versus 100 years ago, they are the same.
0: I'll argue <clears throat> a little bit with you. I uh, think we're starting to see a, a lot more creative, well, I think we're starting to see more creative classrooms. But
1: okay. Well, yes, I think you, if you look at the extreme ends of, you know, uh, special STEM schools and um, uh, experimental schools, of course. But I meant in the average classroom in, let's say, Midwest U.S. or middle China, you will see one teacher and uh, 50 students or 20 students, each behind the desk, raising their hands, the teacher lecturing. And and I think that is very dangerous because uh, the form of rote learning that is delivered through the one-to-many lecture uh, guarantees that most of the skills that you're gaining are routine, and, uh, um, or the knowledge are routine, memorization, remembering. And those are exactly the things that uh, AI will beat us by orders of magnitude. Now, obviously, they're they're good teachers. They're teachers who go in depth, who tell good stories, and so on. Um, but if we think about each aspect of teaching, there are many that don't just don't or shouldn't be done um, in the extent and form that it takes on. The, the lecturing should be done by the masters. It should be the you should be getting a physics lecture from the Nobel Prize winner who also is a great uh, teacher. Uh, everyone should be learning from that teacher. Uh, perhaps in MOOC, or perhaps in a new form that we are investing in, in China, which is a one to 1,000 student-teacher ratio.
0: One to 1,000, so say a little bit more about how that could possibly work because that sounds, yeah. that sounds as rote as possible. One yeah. person lecturing to yeah. a crowd of 1,000.
1: Yeah, so um, that is by remote. And it's a wonderful way to reduce uh, uh, urban-rural disparity in the quality of teachers. So it's a super teacher who may have been a Math Olympiad winner, but also professionally trained and a great articulator. Um, And the interaction in that, it's an interactive class, but the interaction is through a clicker. You've probably attended conferences where there are clickers, you can vote on things or apps that you can vote on things and that allows the teacher to gauge the student um, engagement, understanding, comprehension and be able to pace the course in a way that is um, um, targeted for the um, comprehension level of the students. It can also make the lecture more fun by asking fun questions and see how people respond watching the voting results. Um, and I, I'm not arguing that should be the majority of the, uh, the lectures. I think uh, a lot of the lectures uh, should be given by masters. Uh, if you think about Khan Academy, you know what an amazing teacher can do compared to regular teachers. So every student should get an amazing teacher, whether it's a MOOC or, uh, or a 1 to 1000. In the 1 to 1000 classroom, we also have teaching assistants. So it's not like you're watching a giant video. Because um, uh, at the end of, let's say, a 30-minute lecture, there's another 30 minutes for someone close to you to interactively take questions and help you with points that you didn't get. Um, so that kind of combination uh, should replace the current type of uh, lectures that people get. And I, I would also argue it would become more effective because the top teachers are going to be very good in getting the point across. and then. The local teachers can be trained to be teaching assistants, so a job that's much, um, much easier for each teacher to, to learn to do. So it's a split of responsibility and um, and the students ought to understand the subject much faster and therefore have more time for other activities, which really is the core and essence of the future of education. A so
0: couple questions on that another innovation that we've seen particularly in china has been the use of artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. in a very large environment such as that to monitor facial expressions of students talk a little bit about the um the pros and cons of using ai to monitor the students reactions
1: yes Uh, so we have also invested in companies that do that um, and it's more than that. So if you think about the job of a teacher today, we just uh, took away the lecture part and turned it into an assistant uh, Q&A interactive job, which is much more interesting, more engaging, and saves time from the teacher because the lecturing uh, don't, doesn't need to be done by the teacher, only the interactive uh, Q&A part, men- mentoring teaching part. Um, then, if you look at the other jobs of a teacher, Uh, taking attendance is one of them if there is a uh, system AI that can recognize the students uh, and the way in which they participate uh, it can certainly save time from taking attendance furthermore it can also um, if they need to raise their hand uh, make sure the teacher recognizes it if they want to go to the bathroom they just go because It's recognized. They don't need to waste everybody's time by raising the hand, asking the teacher for permission. Um, And if they get lost or fall asleep, that's also captured. Now, some parents would start to worry, say, wait a minute, I don't want my kids captured on video all the time. Um, But but I think the benefit is that the system will know uh, the comprehension level of the students, not just by how how they do on exam. By that time, it's too late. If they're sleeping or not paying attention in class, uh, there can be gentle ways to deal with that fact. Um, a teaching assistant might offer after school uh, tutoring. Uh, there might be apps that the student can go home and catch up. There might be recording of the lecture that the student missed. And it's important that the teacher knows the individual progress and uh, competency of each student so that uh, students can be grouped in. Uh, <clears throat> the, the, the super class the, and the class that's doing average and the class that needs remedial help. So those are all possible things that can be done. Uh, for people who are concerned about the um, surveillance nature of such an application, mm-hmm. well, develop it so that there is no such nature. Right? Don't,
0: how, how would you do that? Well,
1: don't rat on the students. Don't tell their parents. Uh, don't <clears throat> use it for punishment. Uh, use it Uh, to enhance learning if all see the output of the AI is up to the designers of the AI software so only have the software developers uh, target on improved comprehension participation of the students not for a punitive way and all the video that's recorded can be erased uh, the the moment the class is done
0: So could I just ask one question, just to push back on that point a little bit. Um, One of the things that we've seen recently is the use of AI to monitor uh, brainwave signals as a signal of, are the students paying attention or not? Um, neurologists will tell us that we don't actually entirely know how to interpret some mm-hmm. of these brainwave signals. Mm-hmm. Maybe the student is paying intense attention to the yeah. person sitting next to him. <laughs> uh, maybe, he's, yeah. um, maybe he's in an Einstein moment. Yeah. He's dreaming about something that yeah. could actually be a great revelation, and so even yeah. if he is coming across as distracted, mm-hmm. it's actually that moment of quiet contemplation that mm-hmm. we actually think is at the heart of genius. Mm-hmm. Um, Yet, particularly in high-tech startups, it's it, it, It's the case that we always explain what we think we're going to be able to do, even when we can't yet do it. And so, is there a real danger of over-interpreting uh, signals and almost locking us into uh, interpretations way before we actually know what we're measuring?
1: Oh, no, not at all. We just need to not jump to conclusions. Uh, every signal is just one input. See, when I told you about the bank loan uh, that's able to get an amazing ra- random applicant default rate down to 3%, that's using 3,000 signals. And applying that to the student case, we gather 3,000 signals, including um, you know, pupil movement, uh, head movement, uh, close of the eyes, open of the eyes, uh, opening of the mouth, facial expression, what where, where they're looking at, are they staring or are they um, thinking and brain waves and hand gestures and sitting postures and previous data and compare not with every other student but maybe with the same student a day ago, a week ago, a month ago uh, and also the teacher's comments. So let's say what you said happened um, Einstein moment caused the student to, to appear distracted, and then the teacher checks in and finds the student was amazing, learned everything and more, the teacher will enter the comment, uh, student was brilliant today, and then the system will interpret, will, will take that into consideration so that next time it will uh, treat the signal in a personalized manner. So the aggregate um, recommendation ought to be much, much more accurate because it's taking 3,000 signals, not three signals. And it could make mistakes, but the teachers have a way to correct the mistakes. And also, again, design the system to be gentle. Don't design the system to you know, mark a student's Einstein moment as you know, uh, dozing off, paying attention, reprimand. But rather, check back for comprehension and give feedback. So the design of the entire system will improve and facilitate. And also, this is something humans just can't do. So we're not benchmarking this with a teacher who's assessing 3,000 signals and deciding how the student is doing. We're comparing this with a teacher who can't even have time to check each of the 50 students or 30 students in class. So this is a net add to the existing process. And it can only be better because we won't let it be worse.
0: Knowing the education systems, whether it's in the U.S. or in China, yeah. do, we think, do you think that we have a gentle enough
1: mm-hmm.
0: institutional framework mm-hmm. that will use this kind of powerful technology in a way that will protect students?
1: Oh, in the U.S., you do. In China, probably not yet, uh, because China is more road-learning. Uh, but, but interestingly, um, going back to what else AI can do, in China we're using this to um, uh, currently just to take attendance, nothing more, so there's no, no harm done. Uh, but gradually those things have to be cautiously entered. But also, AI is being used in China, uh, actually in, almost, uh, in most schools today, AI is being used to grade homeworks and grade exams. And that's another part of the repetitive routine job of a teacher that we can take off the table. Uh, Because uh, AI, at this point, can not only grade multiple choice questions, which we, of course, all know, but also fill the blank, uh, make a sentence, uh, mathematical proof, chemical equation, even essays can be graded by machines now. The only exception in what I mentioned is the essay needs to be further checked by the teacher for uh, content, flow, uh, elegance, and so on. But the grammatical and spelling errors can largely be found.
0: And can I flip it for a moment as well? Because I think there's also some implications that AI can be used um, to monitor teachers' performance as well.
1: Yes, it can.
0: Some of the uh, the remote tutoring programs, I believe, are starting mm. to think about using AI yeah. to monitor what's the facial um, interaction yeah. or expressions yeah. of the teachers, mm-hmm. and are they providing the kind of information yes. engagement that students want? Again, mm. pros and cons of this.
1: Well again, it depends on the design. If you presume by just watching eye contact alone, you can grade the teacher from one to five, well that's terrible. Uh, on the other hand, if you integrate many signals, uh, in particular if you use a feedback signal that is outcome-based rather than some subjective human belief, that is you measure how well the students do before and after each lecture, then that is a fairly objective measure uh, and, uh, and, and I think that, that would be okay. So you measure by well how, the, how well the student does. Um, and their improvement, uh, and the their, their rating of how they are by the next teacher who gets them. Because online, sometimes you have a different teacher, each session is, is Uber-like. And that's also one of our portfolio companies uh, called VIP Kit. And also coming back to other things that uh, AI can do, uh, AI can also give exams, um, grade exams, give homework, grade homework, assign remote teachers um, <clears throat> by video conference training, it can also have simulated teacher uh, for for training so that uh, the cost goes way down for the because the one-on-one like tutoring is expensive Uh, some people can't afford it can also use it one of the other uh, startups in china is using it for english accent removal done automatically not by humans and another one of our portfolio companies is doing targeted fun math questions. Knowing where you're weak, but picking questions that are fun, so that it's engaging. Um, And uh, another one of our portfolio companies is um, uh, replacing English teachers at school. (laughs) That is, you play a video and the video might contain Big Bang Theory or uh, Silicon Valley or whatever that's fun uh, for the class. And then at the end of the class, they learn the same uh, grammatical constructs and um, vocabulary as they would in, uh, in the uh, uh, boring textbook approach. And then the video can be interactively constructed based on the content that needs to be taught and the interest level of the students. So each one of the things I mentioned, uh, including English accent removal, uh, targeted math, uh, online video, uh, on-the-fly le- lecture construction. Uh, AI to grade homeworks and so on and so forth. Each every one of them is measured to improve the outcome. Um, so they lead to either a student getting a better grade or the student uh, learns the same thing faster. And the whole purpose of everything I describe is not that we want an automaton to teach the class, but rather to free up the teacher's time. If all the things I mentioned can free up 60% of the time of a teacher, then that time can be used by the teacher to do what we really want the teacher to do, that is one-on-one mentoring and coaching and question answering, understanding the individuality of each student, uh, helping them to find their passion uh, and give them encouragement and positive feedback uh, and point them to extracurricular opportunities uh, and also improve their teamwork and, and create projects that require teamwork, communication, EQ training. Because going back to the AI issue, uh, human skills are going to become more important. So now we're shifting the class by freeing up the teacher's time from the routine tasks and asking the teacher to become an engaged one on one mentor.
0: Fantastic. I'm going to switch subjects now and talk a little bit about the <clears throat> entrepreneurial world. Um, your book is a fascinating description of the gladiator capitalism in China. Mm -hmm. If you were to advise a startup company, maybe even a startup Mm -hmm. company in education technology Mm -hmm. that's thinking about going into China, what would be your advice to them?
1: Uh, I would advise don't.
0: Don't? Yeah. Okay, why? Uh,
1: Because the education system is so different that for the 90 8% 8% of the EdTech companies in the US, they're focused on some elements related to the American system. How to sell software to uh, schools in a particular city or county, uh, and uh, how to do payment within schools. And um, uh, largely, they have to do with um, uh, a sales force and a product that fits in the American education system. The Chinese system is very different. Uh, the schools have a very small budget and their approach to teaching is more rigid and not as open to uh, adopting uh, new software unless it immediately leads to uh, better performance, better outcomes. As Chinese uh, educators are very outcome focused. If you don't if you want to show them something that improves the kids' grades measurably, they'll look at it. Anything else for, you know productivity and things, it's, it's not clear. They'll use it. Uh, The Chinese way to monetize education is through the parents. And that's a a dramatic difference from the U.S. because um, I think American parents have a more uh, uh, different way of spending money on the kids, going to camp, uh, taking piano lessons, violin lessons, and so on and so forth. Uh, The Chinese teachers are willing to spend uh, whatever it takes, half of their monthly salary, If the kids can get into better schools China because China has such a focus on education the Chinese society depends so much on education performance as a predictor of future success and uh, I mean material success and income and therefore and also most Chinese parents have one child uh, even with the removal of the one child policy they still mostly have 1.2 children or something like that so all the Resources and expectations are put in that child, so the monetization through parents is a fantastic opportunity, and that's not going to be understandable by the American entrepreneurs. So it's the it's really in my book. I talk about the parallel universe in my mobile apps versus your mobile apps, but the same is true in an education system for a diff- very different reason. So the fit will not be very good.
0: One of the things you talk about in your book as fueling the, um, the um, incredible rise of uh, AI in China right now is both the availability of the data yeah. and then the supportiveness of the governmental systems um, for both uh, the, the industry overall. Um, when you look at the opportunities for uh, tech and perhaps even EdTech and AI in the US market, Do you see those two factors as hindering the development of AI here?
1: AI for ed tech? Yes. I think um, ed tech in the US is not a hot area for investments. Um, The kind of companies we have seen fall into two categories. One is uh, selling stuff to schools and those tend to be productivity, administrative um, things that uh, are very hard to monetize because you have to have a dedicated sales force for a you know, modest budget of the schools and uh, their, their, their upside and their ceiling is limited. The other set of companies we've seen are very aspirational companies that aim to disrupt education, uh, companies like Minerva and Outschool. Which are incredibly um, aspirational and exciting, but um, in terms of being outcome based, it, it will take um, decades uh, to see the outcome and change the way people think. Uh, education, I think the boom, the positive side of this, is that the American education system is so good, so, so to tweak it is uh, not very uh, lucrative. And to disrupt it is very hard because it's already quite good. I know that many Americans feel American education is no good, but it may be no good, but it's the best in the world. So, and are you
0: referring to primarily universities? Are you referring to K-12? Which which portion of education are you referring to? All of
1: the above. All of the above. All of the above. I think it's self-reinforcing because universities are good they lead to better high schools, better elementary schools. Obviously the weakness of American schools is that they don't have a very uh, guaranteed degree of competence of the graduates. That's the weakness. The strength is uh, people find their passion. Um, Teachers are uh, incredibly good relative to other countries in terms of being um, uh, really caring about the students. Think about a job that pays so little yet people do it. Many do it for love. And when you love your job, you do a great job. And it's a pity they, they, they're paid so little. But I think um, uh, I went to American schools, and I was uh, incredibly touched by many of my teachers whose uh, devotion to students that they would take lunch hour to teach me English when I didn't speak any English, uh, that they would drive me to university to take a calculus class when the high school didn't offer it, um, that they would encourage me and make me think think that I was a genius in the subjects that I was good. I now know I'm not, but I think those things are, are the little things that really are the magic of the American education system.
0: Your company, Sino Ventures, has invested in on the order of about 10 different U.S. education technology companies. Yes, yes. Um, tell us a little bit about what you've been looking for, and are you investing in them because you believe in their potential in the U.S. market, in the Chinese market, in the worldwide market? All of the above, none of the above?
1: Um, we have invested in quite a few ed tech companies, and uh, we Thoughts, there were linkages we could draw and um, perhaps bring the technologies to China and in some cases we just wanted to invest to learn about what's happening here. So we've given our U.S. team a, a pretty small budget. The investments are very small in EdTech. Uh, well, first, the company's valuation is not that high, and then we don't take that much share.
0: And, and just to be clear, when you say very small, because everyone's got a different sense of scale, when yeah. you say very small, what's what's the range? Uh,
1: $500,000 to a million, million okay. and a half. All right. Uh, our typical tech investments are probably five times larger in China, um, and we've connected. I think, I think we've learned a lot about the differences of the uh, education system and EdTech in US and China, we haven't found much linkage. So um, uh, the one linkage we have found was we have a, uh, we tend to focus on the tech part of EdTech in the US because that's the part that's easiest to inject to China uh, because one could take the tech and repackage the whole thing to fit the environment. Uh, so one success we've had was a company uh, that uh, uh, graded uh, English essays. Uh, automatically.
0: This is
1: right lab? Uh, yes, yes, Right Lab, yeah. Uh, they've since been acquired, yes. and it was a good outcome for us. Uh, and the, and the, but the technology was what made possible. Uh, in China, as I mentioned, we had a, another company uh, that actually grade, literally grades billions of homeworks every year, and those homeworks assignments they could do multiple choice fill in the blank chemistry equation math proof they couldn't do essays so we put this module in and it's a perfect fit that's the kind of example of technology from the u.s injected into a chinese educational package Uh, it's unfortunate we we couldn't find more opportunities than that
0: one of the observations that people have made recently is that the u.s has, does not have an opportunity, does not offer as many opportunities as China does for companies to scale. So specifically with RightLab, yeah. one of the uh, potential reasons for the acquisition was yeah. that they could be part of a bigger company yeah. that could then scale more, they were bought by Chegg. Yes. Uh, do you think that that's a limiting factor in the U.S. marketplace?
1: It is, it is. There are multiple limiting factors. Um, One is, as you mentioned, the market is not that large. The ability to pay is not anywhere close to China. If you think about the Chinese parents, there are hundreds of millions of parents, um, many of whom are willing to pay half their month's salary on the kids' education. That's a gigantic market compared to here, where you're going to the school budget, taking a tiny percentage of that. So the market's too small. That's one issue. The second is the curse of the... um, Uh, first mover or the top leader. like U.S. was way ahead in landline, telephone, so mobile developed more slowly. U.S. was way ahead in credit cards, so mobile payment developed more slowly. Um, U.S. is so much better in chain stores like Walmart and um, uh, uh, Costco and shopping malls, so e-commerce developed more slowly. You might think it developed quite fast, but compared to China, it's nothing. So China has the uh, leg mover advantage of being slow, being in uh, inferior shape in terms of uh, uh, landline and uh, credit cards and shopping malls uh, and, uh, and now education. Being behind allows you to uh, jump uh, leapfrog and jump to the new generation because you don't have the baggage and also your benchmark is lower. If Chinese education was uh, 60, America was 80, uh, and you could now do 85, in China that would be a huge jump. But in the U.S., this is incremental improvement.
0: Last question is, in your book, you really talk about sort of the dramatic insights that you had that came from the illness that you experienced, Mm -hmm. and you talk about having a remarkable insight about how you spend your time, and what your personal goals are?
1: Yeah.
0: How will the whole world have those kinds of insights without the sort of moment of mortality that you faced?
1: <laughs> I've learned is very hard because you have you just had to be there. <laughs> um, when I faced death uh, with a fourth stage lymphoma. Uh, it was a rude awakening moment when I realized that uh, my whole life I optimized my uh, efficiency and productivity and how to change the world, measure everything by how I can make a bigger impact and almost ran like an AI algorithm that optimizes everything. Uh, And I was so proud of my uh, efficiency and accomplishments. But um, in facing the possibility that my life may end in months, I realized that none of those things really mattered, and in fact, it's shared by many people facing death. Uh, a book by Bronnie Ware, uh, *The Five Regrets of the Dying*, clearly points out that people facing death, and she was a um, uh, end-of-life care nurse, she listened to 2,000 people, and none of them wished they'd work harder or accomplished more. Uh, they they wished that they would. Uh, Spend more time with their loved ones and love them back. They find that she found that uh, uh, they want to do what their their heart tells them, not what the world tells them they should do. Uh, And but but only facing death do we realize that. And and when I um, went in remission and recovered, I thought I should write a book that talks about the lessons that I learned, that and many others, and that became. my worst selling book. Uh, it sold okay, but largely it was sold to the Chinese young people whose maybe their parents, uh, one of their parents had cancer. So they bothered to give the parents and basically say, I don't know what to get you. Uh, Kai-Fu recovered from cancer. There's probably some wisdom in it. Maybe you can do what he does. So that became my primary sale. It didn't really lead anyone to an awakening moment, especially not in China, when it's uh, prospering, everyone's fighting in a gladiatorial environment to become the next billionaire, um, it's, it's, that, it's that stage in the development of a country when people are not into uh, what's my life about, they're more into um, how to maximize uh, impact or, or money or success or fame or vanity. So, so I've come to the conclusion it's rather difficult to, for people who didn't have the death-facing experience uh, to, um, to live it vicariously and, and just read some, what someone else has to say. Uh, Bronnie Ware's book I don't think is a bestseller. <laughs> My book wasn't a bestseller. Um, but I continue to articulate the message, and I'm sure out of a thousand people who hears it, one or two might have an um, epiphany, and that would be good enough.
0: You have a lot of optimism about how AI will change our world, but do you have a worry too?
1: I certainly have a worry. Uh, I think AI brings a lot of challenges to the world. Um, the job displacement is one of them. Uh, even though the jobs, even though AI will create more jobs, those jobs that AI creates will tend to be non-routine. So for the routine people job, people whose jobs were replaced, uh, it's not so easy for them to move into a non-routine job because that requires a lot of training. How would a country or a company help facilitate that? Uh, I don't think governments and companies have ever dealt with this kind of a problem. I'm also concerned about the uh, security, uh, privacy, uh, data bias that AI could bring about. Uh, most of it is manageable, but uh, security is a very big one. Uh, autonomous vehicles can be taken over by non-state actors uh, as as uh, weapons. Uh, autonomous weapons could be um, deployed for um, uh, much uh, faster and challenging uh, exist- existential threat to uh, to a country, and um, and also the bar of entry is low for AI. So. Uh, terrorists could take advantage of it. Large countries can reach some kind of an agreement, but uh, terrorists and uh, non-state actors and rogue states is uh, very dangerous to worry about what they might do.
0: Even governments could be highly manipulative yes. of their own people.
1: Yes, well, uh, yes, or use it for aggression, right? Um, we don't yet know what North Korea will, will have. So all of these do worry me. But I think what is important is that I also feel equally strongly that AI for good uh, will bring tremendous dividend to humanity. Um, it will create so much value and wealth that can be used to deal with the problem and deal with other pre-existing problems. Uh, wealth inequality, uh, poverty and hunger, uh, helping bring up the uh, state of education and healthcare. Uh, I also see that Uh, Ultimately, when all the routine jobs are gone, I think we can find a higher purpose because I don't think uh, humanity was brought to this earth um, in order to do routine jobs. I think we all have some meaning that uh, we may have been blinded due to the industrial revolution that wants everybody just to work harder. Now we have a chance to take a moment back. I also think AI uh, could give us more time back. We might end up with three-day or four-day work week. uh, Or for people who choose to, they can have three-day or four-day work week. Uh, There will be, uh, rather than paying high taxes, uh, people can get money back, not necessarily through universal basic income, but through some mechanism that uh, gives people a um, a free uh, free retraining or free coursework in arts and sciences or whatever they love because there's more Money in the society because AI has become our our um, our tools to make money to give us more freedom. So I see all these uh, good things too. Now, I think as a thought leader, a writer, an author, uh, an expert in AI, someone that some people listen to, I think it's my responsibility to point towards the positives because I think uh, I think. People who can influence each other, if they influence each other uh, for things that are bad, for things that are negative, for dystopia, then what they say may lead to uh, a self fulfilling prophecy. And the same is true if they point towards the optimism. So I do acknowledge the threats, but I choose to uh, point out the optimism. And if more people can be influenced to um, have greater confidence that this is AI as a tool they can use it, uh, we'll be better off, uh, but also be aware of some of the dangers, then I think uh, we might end up with a better world.
0: Kaifu, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you.